This probably has not happened to any of you children. I'm actually joking when I say that. Um, But has it ever happened, children, where there's been something that you wanted to do and you were just determined to do it? And you said, I'm going to do such and such. And one of your parents said to you, no, you're not. You ever had that happen to you? I'm going to eat another cookie out of that cookie jar. No, you're not. And you didn't. Because your mom triumphed at that point. It's probably it was your mom. Um, or, um, I'm going to climb that huge tree. Uh, in my neighbor's yard, no, you're not. Mm-mm, not going to happen. And it didn't, because your parent stepped in. Or, I'm going to cross that road to play with my friend. No, you're not. Traffic's busy. You're not crossing that road. And you were prevented by mom or dad from doing what you were determined to do. You ever had that something like that happen to you? That happened to me pretty regularly as a kid, actually. Yeah. Our parents have the final say. Because we're under, when we're children, we're under our parents' authority. And uh, they get to say what happens and what doesn't happen to us. Even if we don't like it, even if we say, no, I'm going to do something different, mom and dad win the day. And they should. Someday, if you have the privilege of being parents when you're grown up, uh, you will have that same uh, responsibility that your parents now have over you to sometimes say, no, you're not going to do whatever it is you say you're going to do. God is our Heavenly Father, children. And He gets to say what happens and what doesn't happen with all of us, not just you children, but all of you adults who are God's children as well. God gets the final say over the way our lives, over what happens to us in our life. And this passage, that's one of the things that is very uh, obviously taught in this passage. We're going to get to that here. Actually, it's going to be the first point in particular, uh, which is the um, I'm getting, going to get to here in just a moment. But God gets to um, overrule us um, and our intentions when they are contrary to his will for our life. And you'll see that in this uh, first point in particular in this sermon. Uh, just a reminder of what's happened prior to this point. Uh, we've been looking at the reign of King Jehoshaphat, king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and um, he was one of the southern kingdom's most godly kings. Uh, and yet, as this particular chapter attests, even Jehoshaphat committed uh, a couple of pretty serious sins himself uh, in defiance of God's will for him, particularly during this, this was in the earlier portion of his reign. He was a younger uh, uh, man at this point in time when this, these events occurred. Um, and uh, he messed up pretty seriously. Um, in a couple of ways that we looked at last time and I'm going to remind you of here in a second. 
uh, well, I'll remind you of right now. First of all, uh, he sinfully allied himself with the wicked uh, king of the northern kingdom. Actually, he wasn't the actual king. He was the um, uh, illegitimate king of the northern kingdom. Uh, all the northern tribes should have been in ob- uh, obedience to the Davidic king, who was who Jehoshaphat was in the line of David and was the Davidic king, but it, the, the the ten northern tribes broke away as we all know, and and so they have Ahab as their uh, king, and uh, Ahab was a as everybody knows uh, a horribly evil man, and his wife Jezebel might have even been more horrible than he was, which is hard to do, but they had a horrible daughter whose name was Athaliah. And uh, Jehoshaphat very unwisely and sinfully uh, arranged to have his son, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, marry Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Big mistake. Huge mistake that had generational consequences, as we'll see in coming uh, weeks and months ahead, Lord willing, as we work our way through uh, Second Chronicles. So that was the first thing he did. He allied himself with Ahab through marriage. But then, shortly after that, he, he militarily allied himself with Ahab by agreeing to fight alongside this, uh, this man in his, uh, war with the Arameans. And, uh, we looked at that, uh, last time we were, uh, in this chapter as well. And that, and that brings me, by the way, as we're talking about the war, uh, with the Arameans, that brings me, uh, to the passage that we are looking at today, verses 28 and following through 9-4. Uh, which records what transpired, uh, at least up to the end of the, chapter 18, what transpired during this battle uh, between the Arameans and the combined forces of Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Three points. Uh, the, two, uh, the last two are uh, much shorter. Uh, first point is that uh, we're going to look at is that Yahweh sovereignly overrules Ahab's attempt to thwart his, that is Yahweh's, own revealed will. He sovereignly overrules Ahab's attempt to thwart his revealed will. Secondly, Yahweh mercifully rescues Jehoshaphat from mortal, a mortal danger he could have avoided. And then finally, Yahweh bluntly scolds Jehoshaphat for his sinful alliance with Ahab. First, he sovereignly overrules Ahab's attempt to thwart his own revealed will. This is found in verses uh, uh, 28 to the end of the chapter. Um, Specifically, what I'm referring to is what the Lord had previously announced would transpire once Ahab and Jehoshaphat engaged militarily with the king of Aram's forces. Uh, And what had been announced was... uh, announced by a messenger, a prophet of God himself, a man named Micaiah. In uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 22, I won't read it to you right now, but I'll just remind you of what happened uh, when Micaiah was uh, uh, brought before Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Uh, the reason this happened was during a visit to the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria by King Jehoshaphat of Judah, Israel's king Ahab uh, urged, had urged Jehoshaphat to join with him uh, in his um, fight with the Aramean king, uh, the king of Aram, and his forces. forces. Uh, he was 
he was twisting Jehoshaphat's arm, metaphorically speaking. And before agreeing to Ahab's request, you'll recall that Jehoshaphat felt the need to consult with the Lord concerning whether or not this was a wise idea. So, at Jehoshaphat's insistence, Ahab, uh, wanting to seal the deal, summons Micaiah to prophesy before the two of them, which he ends up doing. He's brought before him in verse 14 and starts prophesying to those who were present. Well, what did those who were present learn from this prophet of God? Well, they learned that the outcome of the upcoming battle was going to be utterly disastrous for Ahab and for his kingdom, for his subjects. Specifically, they learned that Ahab was going to fall, uh, uh, a euphemism for die, at Ramoth-Gilead. That was in verse 19 of earlier in the chapter. And that as a result of the loss of their ruler, the people of Israel and his armies were going to be scattered. We read that in verse 16 uh, last time we were here. Uh, very bad outcome for Israel and for the king, obviously, uh, Ahab. Now, at this point, it's critical for us, as we think about this uh, passage further and this point further, it's critical that we remember what this prophecy that Micaiah, Micaiah um, spoke, what it represented. What did it represent? It represented the decreed will of the sovereign God. God spoke. He used a man's lips to do it, but that was God speaking when Micaiah was there before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And his words were God's words, meaning revealing God's will, God's intention, God's plan for the battle that was to ensue shortly. And the fact that it was the decreed will of God that came out of Micaiah's mouth What that meant, at the moment that Micaiah uttered it, and for those who heard it, is it meant that the soon-to-transpire events about which Micaiah was speaking were an unalterable certainty. Nothing would, nothing could change these divinely decreed outcomes about which he had spoken, the prophet of God. For the very reason that nothing about God does or can change. Including his will. Including his plan. He is the immutable God. And what he says goes. Always. And this prophesied, decreed will of God was spoken in the hearing of these two kings, both of them, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. They both knew, in other words, exactly what the Almighty was intending to do and would do before they ever set foot on the battlefield. Now, we can only guess as to why Jehoshaphat didn't hightail it out of there immediately after hearing what Micaiah said. Perhaps he stuck around <clears throat> because Micaiah made actually no mention of him, of any disaster befalling him personally. His remarks were really directed at Ahab. And perhaps he was still wanting to uh, 
um, please Ahab for some strange reason. And so he stuck around foolishly, sinfully, um, after hearing what Micaiah had said. But Ahab, Ahab being the narcissistic, self-impressed person that he undoubtedly was, he flattered himself with the belief that he was shrewd enough to outwit the Lord of history. The omnipotent, omniscient Lord of history and decreer of history. He thought he could outwit him. After hearing what the Lord had intended. What was Ahab's plan? Well, in verses 28 and 29, we read of it. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against remote Gilead. And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you put on your robes, meaning your royal, uh, your royal robes, your royal regalia. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. And Jehoshaphat went into battle, of course, with all his purple and, you know, whatever else he had, mink and, uh, silver, gold, and his, all his trappings, those royal trappings. So that's Ahab's plan, <clears throat> is that they will go in, he will go in disguised in such a way that the Arameans will not recognize him as the king of Israel, and he's going to convince, and would convince, and did convince Jehoshaphat to proceed into battle dressed again in his royal attire. And Ahab's intention in this plan was in arranging to have uh, Jehoshaphat engage the enemy dressed as king and not himself, was to trick the Arameans, right? Into targeting uh, Judah's ruler with their aggression and with their weapons rather than himself. I'll dodge this bullet. Ahab's thoughts. He undoubtedly believed uh, that he, his clever scheme would actually prevent Yahweh <coughs> from bringing about the outcome that his divine spokesman, Micaiah, had foretold. Namely, that Ahab was going to die on the battlefield. But he thought, no, 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 no. I'm smarter. I'm a smart guy. This isn't going to happen. Watch, watch this. Watch what I'm going to arrange. And he was convinced that he himself would emerge the victor, contrary to what Micaiah had prophesied, and that his useful idiot neighbor, uh, Jehoshaphat, would take any swords, arrows, axes that were otherwise intended for Ahab. He really was a useful idiot at this point. Jehoshaphat was. Talk about, and, and, and Ahab thought he could get away with this. Talk about profoundly underestimating God's power and God's will. Well, what I've just said, this was covenant-breaking Ahab's plan. Remember, he's in covenant with the Lord. He's a covenant-breaker. That's what what Ahab's plan was, but Ahab's covenant lord had sovereignly decreed something entirely different for that day and that battle. And that was that Ahab should die on the battlefield 
and that as a result of his death, his army and his subjects were to be scattered. But Ahab's going to die. God would see to it. Now the chronicler, in verse 33, explicitly states, he uses the words, that Ahab was going to die as a result of an arrow fired at random by an Aramean soldier. But of course, you know as well as I do at this point that the chronicler's proverbial tongue is very much in his proverbial cheek as he writes this. He clearly meant the exact opposite of what he was saying. By using that, uh, that language, he was, he, was, he was being extremely sarcastic. What he was saying was, there's nothing at all random <coughs> about this arrow's release or its trajectory. For all intents and purposes, God himself shot this arrow from his throne in heaven. Might as well have. Yahweh's decree, not Ahab's plan, let alone chance, determined Ahab's fate that day. This was true of Ahab in his day, and it is true of you and me in our day. Yahweh's decree always is what transpires. That can be a little unsettling when people first hear that until you realize who Yahweh is. He's the God of grace and love and mercy and wisdom personified. All those things and power. And he is a God who loves his people with indescribable love as evidenced by what happened at the cross. And that's a God that you can trust to be in control, absolute control, of your life. Proverbs 16.33 makes this point uh, that uh, chance was not uh, at work in that uh, in Ahab's day on that battlefield or any day for that matter chapter 16 verse 33 reads <clears throat> the lot is cast into the lap you all know the verse but it's every decision is from the lord it appears like a die thrown onto a table it appears that what comes up is random but the lord made the decision as to what was going to come up you see. Same was true with that arrow. What appears to be random is not random. Nothing is left to chance. You all know this. But it, we need to be reminded of this. Nothing is left to chance. And something else we need to be reminded of is that our plans are just that. There are plans. But God has his, and as I mentioned to the children, he gets the final say. Proverbs chapter 19, again, Solomon's wisdom. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. It will stand. 
regardless of whether or not those plans of man agree or not with the decreed will of God. And you folks, we need to remember this. We need to remember this at all times, but particularly when when we're tempted because of our circumstances to sin against the Lord or to do something sinfully because we haven't remembered this, to kick against the goads. When we're tempted to kick against the goads, I'm regularly tempted to kick against the goads when I'm out on the road. Uh, bad drivers just drive me crazy. Just ask my family. And I struggle to, uh, to deal with people who are rude. You know, don't use their blinkers and the like. Cut, cut you off and so on. Um, and all sorts of things. But when I, when I, when I chafe inside, I'm kicking against the goats. Because God arranged this little frustration that I'm dealing with out as I'm out on, on the loop. <clears throat> it's not chance that that happened. It's a test. And you probably have had some tests in your life like that. And you, you know what I'm talking about. We need to remember at those moments when we're frustrated because the thing I just bought broke, you know, when I was trying to fix the dryer or whatever. You know, the faucet starts shooting water up in the air because it rusted because of Lufkin's terrible acidic water. No, that was the Lord doing that. Calm down. This is a test. Rise to the occasion. Say thank you, Lord, by faith, and you know, turn the water off at the house. We need to remember this when we when tragedy strikes, folks. When people die whom we love. Sometimes tragically. Or sometimes predictably. We need to remember this. The Lord is in charge. And when we make our plans for this and that and the other thing for this week or this month or this year, these are my plans and it's okay to make plans. But there's a possibility God has some other plans. And he may overrule that plan of mine. And I need to be okay with that if that's what happens. We need to remember that and not be presumptuous. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. James talks about that. If the Lord wills is how you should speak. Not, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Because I've decided that's what I'm going to do. Okay, well, you may. If the Lord wills it, you will. Don't forget that. Nothing is left to chance. Secondly, Yahweh, in addition to uh, sovereignly overruling Ahab's attempt to thwart his own revealed will, Yahweh also mercifully rescues Jehoshaphat from a mortal danger that he could have avoided. Verses 30 to 32. The mortal danger to which he was exposed... I'll just go ahead and read the verses. Well, no, I... I, this mortal danger resulted from an order uh, that the king of Aram gave to his um, 
underlings to specifically the uh, uh, chariot captains. He says in verse 30, uh, Now the king of Aram had commanded the captain of his chariots, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but you're to fight with, uh, implied, the king of Israel alone. He's the one you're supposed to go after. And then, um, so uh, when give, having received those orders and given those orders to his men, when uh, the soldiers noticed, <clears throat> as they're in the battle, a man dressed in royal robes, they assume that it is Israel's king. And they pursue this man, who is actually Jehoshaphat, with murderous intent. Which we read of in verse 31. And so it came about, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. He is in grave danger at that point. And that situation, that perilous predicament that he found himself in was one that he could have avoided himself a couple of ways. First of all, or a couple of times. First, uh, first of all, the moment he heard Micaiah's ominous prophecy about how the battle against the Arameans was going to turn out, he heard that prophecy. He should have decided right then and there that he was not going to be assisting Ahab in his little military adventure. I'm out of here. That's what he should have done. He didn't do it then. Another opportunity that he had, a second one, was um, once he heard Ahab suggesting that he, Jehoshaphat, should go into battle wearing his royal regalia <coughs> while Ahab donned a disguise, he heard this. Presumably so that he wouldn't be recognized as a king. Any idiot could have figured that out. He should have realized that he was, Jehoshaphat should have realized that he was being played for a fool. And should have backed out. He didn't either time. He proceeded into battle with Ahab. Now, even though Jehoshaphat was a believer, a Jewish believer, but he was a believer um, in Yahweh and Yahweh's son, who he didn't know yet, his Messiah, he was a believer, but Yahweh didn't prevent Jehoshaphat from experiencing a very serious consequence of Jehoshaphat's Jehoshaphat's foolish and sinful choice to go into battle with Ahab. He almost lost his life. Almost died because of the choice he made he could have avoided making. Folks, God will often let us experience negative consequences of our foolish and sinful decisions as well. And that's a good thing. When he does this, it doesn't it's not enjoyable perhaps, seldom negative consequences are never enjoyable, but they're good. They're teaching moments that God provides us with to teach us to chasten us, to humble us, to force us to trust in him in ways that we we wouldn't otherwise do. And perhaps some other possible motives as well. But it's much wiser, rather than to be taught that way, or humbled that way by experiencing negative consequences of our own sinful uh, choices, it's much wiser to heed the words 
that Solomon again spoke in Proverbs in verse 20, excuse me, chapter 27, verse 12, which says, A prudent man sees evil and hides himself, but the naive proceed and pay the penalty. See, the, the prudent man, he sees evil and hides himself. He goes, no, I'm not going to partake. I'm not going to participate in that. The naive Jehoshaphat, at least on this occasion in his life, proceed and they pay the penalty. He nearly died in battle because of his choice to ally himself with Ahab. Are there any decisions that you are contemplating in which you need to apply this principle of prudence where you see evil and you hide yourself but where you're tempted perhaps not to hide yourself, to not walk away from a bad, an unwise, a sinful decision that you're contemplating. Your teenagers face a lot of peer pressure, a lot of temptations provided by the internet, your phones. It's easy to fall prey to those decisions and uh, to, to those temptations and to take a bite of the apple, so to speak. Don't. Don't do it. It's foolish, and God hates when we do that. And you may pay a big price for your sinful choice. Although Yahweh allowed Jehoshaphat to be exposed to mortal danger as a result of his foolish decision, the Lord eventually delivered the king of Judah from the danger that he was in. And that, of course, is also uh, in verse 31, the second portion. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. And God diverted them, the Arameans, from him. This was a great mercy on God's part. Jehoshaphat certainly didn't deserve the mercy, but he got the mercy from the Lord. And Yahweh's, the Lord's deliverance of Jehoshaphat, <clears throat> we need to know this, is not an absolute guarantee to you and me that God will always deliver us from all negative consequences of foolish decisions we may make. Think of David. He wasn't delivered from the consequences of his... He was forgiven, but he wasn't delivered from the consequences. He suffered a great deal of negative consequences after his choice with Bathsheba. But God may, but it's presumptuous to assume he will, deliver you from foolish decisions that you've made. But if he does, you better be very thankful. He's being exceedingly merciful to you in not giving you what you deserve if you indeed proceed in some foolish endeavor or choice.
Don't make the choice. Just don't make the choice. Obey God the first time. Thirdly, and finally, not only does uh, the Lord uh, sovereignly overrule Ahab's attempt to thwart his own will, and not only does he uh, mercifully rescue Jehoshaphat from mortal danger that he could have avoided, but he also bluntly scolds Jehoshaphat for his sinful alliance with Ahab. And this is found in verses uh, 1 through 3 uh, of chapter 19. Uh, then, uh, then Jehoshaphat, well, I'll, yeah, I'll read it. Then Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? These verses are a kind of postscript, verses uh, 1 through 3 in particular, are a kind of postscript uh, for the previous uh, section, the previous chapter and its contents. These verses constitute basically one final rebuke divine rebuke of Jehoshaphat's recent foolish behavior and choices. And it also, by the way, highlights the chroniclers and the Holy Spirit speaking through him, their foremost concern with Jehoshaphat's actions in the previous chapter. Before I get to those actions, I just want to talk about the the mouthpiece who rebuked the Lord, the mouthpiece of the Lord who did the rebuking, a man named Jehu, the son of Hanani, uh, is the one who is uh, shows up on this occasion to give Jehoshaphat uh, an earful. And Hanani was the prophet who uh, rebuked Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, uh, for looking to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, for help rather than the Lord following an attack by uh, the king of Israel, Baasha, on Ahab's, uh, not Ahab, but Asa's uh, kingdom, which was Judah. So Hanani is the father of this guy Jehu. Uh, And so now, on this occasion, here in chapter 18, Hanani's son, Jehu, is now rebuking Asa's son, Jehoshaphat. There's clearly a parallelism that is there, and there's some other things going on um, uh, in terms of literary devices and some other interesting stuff that I won't get into, but it's pretty cool uh, the way it's structured the, the whole passage. Anyway, he's the mouthpiece through which the Lord delivers this rebuke, and the Lord rebukes Jehoshaphat for allying himself with this flagrant covenant breaker, Ahab, who is the uh, illegitimate king of the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat foolishly and sinfully decides to help wicked Ahab. I'm getting that wording from verse 2. A man who hated the Lord. Again, should you help the wicked? That's Ahab. And love those who hate the Lord? Again, that's Ahab. He's saying, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is what the Lord is saying through Jehu. And because he had done this, he he had brought temporal wrath, or was about to bring, had started to bring through uh, through uh, his exposure to mortal danger in the battlefield, mortal wrath upon himself. 
and his kingdom by this ridiculous evil choices that he made in his marriage of his son to Athaliah and military alliance with Ahab. So he rebukes him one last... uh, uh, This is the capstone of this passage where the rebuke is is particularly poignant from the Lord. But even, note this uh, in in conclusion here, even in the midst of the Lord's rebuke of this Davidic king, this son of David, actually great, 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 great grandson. Even in the midst of this rebuke, the Lord offers Jehoshaphat words of assurance, I'm going to call them, in verse 3. I didn't read it here. I'll read it now. But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Ashtarot from the land, and you have set your heart to seek the Lord. The Lord tempers his rebuke with this remark, there is some good in you, Jehoshaphat. Which is a reminder that he was a believer. And though he had strayed, though his path had been wayward, the Holy Spirit was still at work in his life. God had still uh, spared him, uh, not just physically, but spiritually. And he was still one of his children, all in spite of the foolish decision-making that had recently transpired. He was a good man, more or less, says the Lord. And these evidences of good, the removal of the uh, the pagan asteroids from the land, and uh, and the fact that he set his heart to seek the Lord, these evidences of good were qualities that the Holy Spirit himself had wrought in him. Remember the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Goodness is in there. There's good in you. Holy Spirit has placed good in you. And this is true of all those who are truly converted to the faith. There's some good in you. There's some good in me. Because we're inhabited by the Spirit of the living God, who is holy. And he is in the process of transforming our life. He is the one who quickened us. He is the one who keeps us from falling away entirely from the Lord, even when we make foolish decisions, which we all do at times. He is the one who produces within us the necessary evidences of saving union with the Lord Jesus. And you can be grateful that there is some good in you, that God recognizes. It's not perfect. It's not perfect in me but it is wrought by the Spirit's work in us, and um, it is the, the good deeds that we do are things that, if they are done in faith, with the right motives to glorify God, God accepts and rewards even. But it's all, it's all ultimately God who is responsible for those good, uh, that goodness that does increasingly over time show up in a converted person's Life, but we are never we are never given an excuse to do foolish things by God, even if we are converted. It's not carte blanche to take a little walk on the wild side, if I can put it that way. 
This passage makes that point eloquently. If there's anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ being the 100% God and 100% man and the only uh, way to be forgiven by God, the only path to heaven, if you're not trusting in him alone, you are lost and you're on the road to hell. And you will certainly go there unless you flee in faith to Jesus Christ alone. So if you have not done that, that's the only thing you need to hear me say this morning, is you need Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.